I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Podrick Reedy. So, Keith Conharis, welcome to Little Atoms. Uh, we're here this week to discuss your new book, uh, Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism and the Limits of Diversity. Where did this book come from? Was there a, a spark where you thought it must be written or it's an incident, perhaps? Um, there were many sparks where I thought <laughs> this must be written. Um, I never thought I'd write a book about anti-Semitism. I write a lot about Jews and about the Jewish community and I've always refused to define my Jewishness in negative terms. Mm -hmm. I was always much more interested in living Jewish communities than in dead ones and in ones under threat. But there came a point where there was no way of ignoring it. And that was partly due to Corbyn's uh, election as Labour leader in 2015. But some of the roots of this, uh, of the book, go back further than that. In 2014, I wrote a book called Under Civil War, mm. which was about the conflict within the British Jewish community over Israel. And that conflict, which has been heating up for years, that intra Jewish conflict, uh, has been worsened yes. by anti Semitism. Certain groups in the Jewish community feel that other groups are colluding with or providing cover for anti-Semitism and that deepens what is already a very very difficult conflict over Israel so this book has been building for some years and as much as anything else it was an attempt for me to work through some of the intellectual and practical difficulties of how we deal with this impossible conflict that's currently going on mm -hmm. I think like going a little further than that, a lot of the you know, things that you know, were internal, I suppose, to to Jewish community and have even within the the left wing of the Jewish community history have become incredibly, you know, public uh, in a sense, and and have moved far beyond the community. Things like you know the conflicts between groups like the Jewish Labour Movement and Judas and things like that, but those 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 didn't emerge just you know on the day Corbyn was elected by any means. No, and one of the things that you're seeing at the moment is a kind of playing out of what are often grudges and conflicts that go back decades even. Mm. 
you see that with some of the Jewish anti-Zionist left who feel and quite reasonably in fact that they've been abused and marginalized within the Jewish community for a very long time mm -hmm. and while I acknowledge that feeling and I think they're, they're justified in feeling that way they are now currently playing out if not exactly a revenge but they now have a bigger platform from which to fight back so to some extent they're using non-Jewish opinion as a way to fight internal Jewish battles but that's not unique to them no. that happens to some degree uh, across the board mm -hmm. but I have to say that I've always felt that communities, ethno-religious communities, should wash their dirty laundry in public. <laughs> I don't like the idea of communities circling the wagons. I think bad, thing ha bad things happen when you do. But the experience of the last few years has taught me that washing dirty laundry in public also has mm. negative effects mm. and creates openings for external actors who may ha not have the best interests of Jews at heart. Mm -hmm. So chapter headings are you know, fairly not provocative, I guess, but we start off with just what the hell is happening, which I think we've kind of done, but um, chapter three, rather, is, is titled How the Jews Ruined Antisemitism, which um, is, is an, an interesting place to start from. What do you mean by that? Well, we ruined antisemitism by making it complicated. Mm. There was a time when Jews and non-Jews knew what anti-Semitism was, but we mucked up that clear picture of anti-Semitism as essentially yeah. Nazism. And that simple picture of what you describe as consensus anti-Semitism. Yeah, I talk in the book about what I call consensus anti-Semitism, yeah. which is virtual Jews will recognise it as anti-Semitic and also non-Jews, Jewish anti-Semites, see Jews as a unity. So yep. it's it's targeted at all Jews, or almost all Jews. But in the post-war period, that kind of anti-Semitism, which still exists, is still a force, mm -hmm. has over time given way to what I call selective anti-Semitism. And selective anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism directed at certain kinds of Jews, usually combined with philo-Semitic love directed at another kind of Jew. So when I say how the Jews ruined anti-Semitism, what I mean is that our diversity made anti-Semitism much more complex. Mm -hmm. For the anti-Semites as well, <laughs> right? It, mm. it's, I, I get the impression that anti-Semitism is, isn't quite as much fun as it used to be mm. because most anti-Semites, although not all, do recognise that Jews are not identical. So yeah. they have to somehow fit their hatred of Jews into an acknowledgement that not all Jews are hateable. Yeah. And I can't imagine that as, as much fun as being a good old-fashioned Nazi. This is probably because you know, the post-war the post consensus is very few people are going to out and out say, yes, I am a racist, yes, I am anti-Semite. So you, ha you have to complicate things by saying this kind of person but not this kind of person well I also say in the book that the Nazis ruined anti-Semitism <laughs> as well mm. uh, and they ruined it by going so far yeah. that it delegitimized more subtle forms of anti-Semitism and associated people who may have a distaste for Jews but not want to kill every single one mm -hmm. with the Nazis so 
in the post-war period, that consensus that Nazis are a bad thing has actually been not particularly helpful. And I actually talk about this in my previous book as well, Denial of the Unspeakable Truth, which came out last year. And I talk about how consensus isn't necessarily always a particularly helpful thing because it's a, it's a consensus of what is speakable, mm -hmm. right? Rather than a consensus about what people actually feel inside. Yeah. So you can't talk like an old style Nazi very easily anymore, although you could argue that it's becoming resurgent in, re in, in recent years. Um, so you have to kind of hide or dissemble if you want to hate Jews. Mm -hmm. So selective anti-Semitism is, to some extent, uh, a response to the fact that the Nazis made anti-Semitism very difficult. Mm. But you do, I mean, you bring up this, some fascinating um, quotes from mass observation from, I think it was 1946 or 48. Yeah, I cribbed them from yeah. Simon Garfield's book on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go into the archives myself. But but where where you think, I mean, in, in our in our heads, you know, there is there is European anti-Semitism, then there's, as you say, there's the Holocaust where everyone goes, my word, that, that was terrible. Maybe maybe we've gone too far in this, but but, but still, in 1946, 1947, British people are quite openly saying Jews are a problem. You know, Jews. You know, we don't think Jews should be allowed in the country. But as you as you point out, there is that point where no one's saying we should kill all of them all the time. Well, I think it's it's one of the distinctive characteristics of, of British anti-Semitism that it's often been very uh, corrosive and certainly an important thread in. British history, mm -hmm. but it is tended to avoid the mo more violent kind of expression that you've seen in other countries. Mm -hmm. But even that sort of sotto voce anti-Semitism declined in the post-war period, yeah. along with the decline in racism as a speakable option. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that Britain suddenly became an anti-racist country. I don't think it did. I think racism and anti-Semitism have a broad and deep presence in British life as in other countries as well but a dis uh, openly anti-Semitic and openly racist discourse uh, became gradually or not so gradually even uh, delegitimized in the post-war period mm -hmm. while we accept the idea that as a society the very few people apart from I guess like extremists like national action will stand up and say, yes, we are definitely anti-Semitic, yes, we are definitely racist. So we have the societal concept of racism. But I mean, I've seen Nick Griffin say that he's not a racist. I've seen, you know, I've seen you know, David Irving say, oh, I don't hate Jews, I hate Zionists, this, this kind of thing. But so we've, we've, we've got, the, got this on one level, but very few of us have probably fully internalized that idea. Is that what you suggest? Well, it, it's, it's easier to adopt a facade of anti-racist discourse than it mm -hmm. is to be an anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I argue, I think, quite strongly in the book is that anti-racism is actually really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And that applies not just to people like Nick Griffin, who clearly are racist and just yep. want to put a thin veneer on top of it for, for the sake of respectability. That difficulty even applies to people who define themselves as principally an anti-racist and who've been involved in anti-racist activity for decades. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's been enough awareness of how tough it is to really live in an anti-racist manner. I think the, the example that that springs to mind that you mentioned in the book is the um, 
the case of um, Jeremy Corbyn's comment about about Zionists not understanding British irony, which you, I wouldn't say quite cut some slack on, but but bring a, bring a level of understanding to to. Well, I think that comment, which became, which has become quite uh, maybe start maybe you start and sort of explain to the readers and ca- listeners in case anyone missed that. Um, that was a public meeting, I think, held at the Houses of Commons. I think it was before he became. Well, no, it's definitely before mm-hmm. he became Labour yeah. leader. And he he was reported as making a, a scathing comment about Zionists not understanding English irony, mm-hmm. despite living here all their lives. It was actually a bit more specific than that. What he was referring to was. Uh, a couple, I think it was two, very well-known grassroots pro-Israel campaigners who were asking awkward questions and being quite disruptive. And these people are fairly notorious Mm. in pro-Palestinian circles. And they're fairly notorious in Jewish circles (laughs) as well. They're fairly exasperating and awkward presence. So uh, what Corbyn was saying was directed at those specific individuals. So that mitigates it somewhat, but it doesn't let him off the hook completely. Because it would be one thing to say to them, they have no sense of irony. Fair enough, that's fair comment, that's a common or garden, mild insult. But then bring into the fact that they lived in England all their life. And he was negatively comparing them to, I think it was the Palestinian ambassador. Yes who did understand irony despite the fact that he was uh, was not British. And I think that does take you into anti-Semitic territory. But I think the reason for it, I, it was often, when that, when that uh, incident came to light, it was treated by some of Corbyn's distractors as, aha, the mask finally slips, right? We can mm. see through all the verbiage you can see here is an anti-Semitic remark. And this is a proof that he is anti-Semitic. That's his real nature. But I think it's a bit more complicated than that. What I think it was, was as a response to exasperation and annoyance and anger, he let fly. Mm -hmm. And when he let fly, he chose, he drew on deeper wells of probably unconscious discourse that was Mm anti-Semitic. But that's why anti-racism is difficult. Anti-racism has to be strong enough to survive, I say this in the book, uh, it has to survive those periods when the other is being an absolute pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. If it can't survive that, then you have to look to yourself and say, how deeply anti-racist am I? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Listening to Little Atoms this week, we're talking to Keith Khan Harris about strange hate, anti-Semitism, racism, and the limits of diversity. Uh, Keith, we'll come back to what you were just addressing just before the break there about you know, getting on and people, even when they're being you know, anti-racism, even when the other side are wrong, so to speak. But I want to talk about take back to we were talking about the the Nazis and the Holocaust. Now the Holocaust you know, kind of looms over any discussion. What kind of damage in a way does the Holocaust do to anyone trying to write about contemporary or you know, modern day or almost non, non-Nazi related anti-Semitism I guess Well there's a real double bind mm. when writing about the sort of anti-Semitism that, that we're seeing in Britain at the moment say in the Labour Party by using the term anti-Semitism to describe it, a term which is closely associated with the Holocaust then you either risk making contemporary expressions of anti-Semitism seem utterly trivial or um, conflating the two suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn's remark about two Jews not understanding irony being the same as dropping the Zyklon B out of the canisters as Auschwitz which is clearly absurd Mm -hmm. so it's a real problem and I think one way we have to address that is to see the Holocaust as certainly part of the history of anti-Semitism, both modern anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism going back on a much longer time scale, but not necessarily a prototypical example of it. Mm -hmm. In some ways the Holocaust was very atypical. But it's a very difficult argument in a way to make because there there are huge minefields here. Uh, People are incredible, Jews are incredibly sensitive, and not just Jews as well. And to some extent, that's right to be sensitive about it. But I think the Holocaust, the way that it dominates discussions of Jews and anti Semitism, uh, it's not helpful. Yeah. It's not helpful. And I'm not saying we should ignore it, but we should perhaps uh, understand it better in its context and in its times. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, I guess, as you say, a lot of people will. Yeah, the, the immediate thing is any kind of accusation or suggestion that you know, an action or 
or indeed my, or, or words might be anti-Semitic, the immediate thing is, are you calling me a Nazi? And then, and then if you, as you say, it's like, if you're not calling me a Nazi, then I'm not anti-Semitic. So what are you saying here? And then it opens it up, I guess, to all the, the suggestions which always come through, or, or at least have come through hugely in the past you know, four or five years. I mean, God, four or five years we've been talking about this now, of accusations of bad faith, which in themselves... Well, it, yeah. I mean, it, to be fair, yeah. most critics of Corbyn from the Jewish community don't call him a Nazi. Mm. I mean, there are a few people on the fringes who, who do engage in accusations that are that, are that rash. Yeah. Uh, most people are, are more careful mm. not to do that. But you mentioned bad faith there, and that is the the issue which is dominating the anti-Semitism debate in Labour for the, for as long as it's been going on, which is this uh, incredibly circular process when someone makes an, anti- an accusation, the other person saying, no, you're doing this to uh, as a way of defending Israel. Mm. So and recently, I don't know when this podcast will come out, there was uh, Pete Wilsman, who was on the member, member of Labour's National Executive uh, Committee, uh, talking about essentially arguing that most accusers of Corbyn are from the, from the Jew- Jewish sections of the party are essentially agents of, of the Israeli state uh, which is an argument that essentially they're cynics taking the money and not making accusations that based on real emotions mm-hmm. the problem is those accusations those are also met by counter accusations too which is that these denials of anti-Semitism are not made in good faith either. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's true. I, I think, I certainly see with Jeremy Corbyn personally, the accusation that he is an anti- anti-Semite offends his deepest sense of self. Yep. And I think that's true with a lot of people who've been called that. And it is deeply wounding mm-hmm. for them to the point that it's very difficult for them to hear the good faith in the accusations. It is also difficult to hear the good faith in the denials, which isn't to say that everybody's right, because I don't think everybody's right. Mm. But I think that this is not a cynical debate. There are cynics who are... There are some who know exactly what they're doing it and are playing other people like a piano. But I think that's all a small minority. I think mm. everybody involved in this is very passionate and very hurt by what's going on. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that everyone's equally responsible, but it means that it, it, it's wrong to see this as a clash between uh, cynics and real people, mm. because it's not. Mm. I think that there, there's a strong strand in your book where you talk about the I guess the I guess the, the the very strict enlightenment idea of there is the individual there is the, there is the perhaps religious identity there is the political identity and that we can divide these out entirely and that you know and that it's almost I suppose an almost kind of Christian kind of hate the sin love the sinner type thing where where you can just completely separate kind of say I, I can have complete respect for an individual's integrity but I can entirely hate their politics. And I can entirely, and not recognizing that the politics, just like a religion, can be, can be a part of an identity that needs to be, if not tolerated, then understood. Yeah, I mean, 
that's what really the central one of the central points of my book, and it's one that doesn't just apply to Jews; it mm -hmm. applies to other other groups too, which is the inconvenient fact that Jewish identity mm -hmm. is often interwoven with particular political identities, usually Zionist, but sometimes anti-Zionist as well. And that's not unique to, to Jews. No. Muslims and Christians and all sorts of other groups see their particular identities as uh, part of a political vision mm -hmm. or, or vice versa. They don't often see that vision as political, which is a problem. When Jews uh, see being Zionist as part of what it is to be a Jew, they often find it very difficult to acknowledge that Zionism is a political ideology, yeah. like any other. Mm -hmm. So we get into a, a terrible mess here, <laughs> which is that love, love the sinner, hate the sin, just doesn't work. Yeah, It's simply a fact that if you attack Zionism without due care mm -hmm. then you will end up making some Jews at least feel like they are personally under attack mm -hmm. i.e. anti-Semitism and that leads to a major major problem which is it's. It, I'm absolutely not arguing that Zionism should not be up for the uh, for, for questioning, and the qu to question Zionism is to be anti-Semite. But I am saying that unless you're incredibly careful, that is how many Zionist Jews will see it. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to do in the book is try and sketch out a way forward from that, which was very, very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure I was successful, but mm. at least I had a go. <laughs> but there is, I mean, uh, the book... Um deals with how in an age of um, what I believe socialists called super diversity particularly in, in cities like where we are in London New York um, so on, you know Paris you know, where, where you know even in the past 50 years we had we had you know you had certain boxes that like there may have been a lot of ethnic groups but there weren't there weren't this endless multiplicity of you know people that you can't you can no longer usefully pigeonhole or usefully put in a place where these people live in this certain place and they believe this certain thing and they go to this certain they worship in this certain church or temple you know, it's, everything becomes an incredibly more complicated thing even for people who have as you say seen themselves as lifelong anti-racist or, or would describe themselves as really kind of very pro-diversity well it's, it's a mixture yeah. what it creates is a mixture of ignorance and knowledge mm -hmm. a surfeit of ignorance and a surfeit of knowledge so on the one hand we have to navigate uh, a society with a multiplicity of different groups and mi of minorities and minorities within minorities mm -hmm. um, some of whom arrived quite recently or simply British people don't know that much about even very well informed British people yep. don't necessarily know well about on the other hand, we know more than ever, but we know in an unhelpful way, and this is why the online era, I think, has, has, has radically transformed things, in the sense that difference is now on show, and inconvenient facts about that difference are also on show as well. Mm -hmm. It would have been possible 30 or 40 years ago to say, I love Jews, without yeah. knowing much about what they represent and what they believe politically. Yeah. The same with Muslims. Mm -hmm. Right, in an anti-racist 
way, or even if, or even in a racist way, <laughs> it was impo- it was possible to feel that you knew them, and that was partly yeah. because minorities were, until relatively recently, often politically quietist. Yes, but once minorities stop being politically quietist, which mm. is I think what has happened, and once their internal diversity and their political commitments are on show, uh, we're often left scrambling around, not knowing quite how to react. Mm-hmm. And as I say, this odd mixture of ignorance and knowledge, and that is that's one of the things that that's, if, if you look online in debates about anti-Semitism, you see non-Jewish protagonists often have a really weird mixture of knowing quite a lot about certain kinds of Jews, but absolute ignorance about other things. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't really blame them because it's difficult, <laughs> and we're not the only minority in this country. Mm. Yeah. You know, understanding it's uh, it's only been relatively recently that I've been fully aware of how ignorant I was about Islam. I mm-hmm. mean, I've known for a long time that they were Shia and Sunni, and I had a vague idea of what what they represent said represented. But I didn't know that Shia Islam, for example, has multiple streams within. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. Know? And and I'm still struggling to try and educate myself there. Mm. And so I don't blame people who have tried to seize on the little, the, the sort of the life rafts of knowledge that, that, they, that they can cling on to about Jews. But there's no doubt that it has very serious consequences. And I think it erodes anti-racism or the possibility of it because people are suddenly confronted with the fact that minorities or minorities within minorities may believe things that are utterly abhorrent yeah <laughs> and they won't shut up about it <laughs> <laughs> but we are at least i guess you know it's, it's something i've always said sort of, at least at least acknowledging that groups do have their own internal dynamics and internal politics and everything else that goes with it that you can't you can't simply say these are jews also when you, every every few years there's a Yes, someone will turn up on on Facebook or something with it with a picture of two people from Natura Carta saying, "Oh, they see these people aren't Zionists either." Therefore, ergo, oh, that still happens. Yeah. That still happens. Yeah. But I, I think people are slowly. I think we're in the foref- Jews are in the forefront of this because we we are really mouthy and we don't shut up. <laughs> so, in a relatively haphazard way, we've we've been. I wouldn't say educating, but at least informing mm-hmm. the world that not all Jews are the same. Right and and Muslims are sort of in their own haphazard manner also, mm. also catching up. Internal diversity was not something that that when original theories of multiculturalism and, and diversity and anti-racism started emerging in the sixties and seventies, there weren't really things that were addressed. Yeah, and that means that people who grew up as anti-racist during that period often have no idea how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm being very charitable here, saying yeah. I understand the um, the difficulty in dealing with this. Mm. But what I'm not saying is excusing it. Mm. I'm not excusing it. I'm saying that anti-racists are often woefully naive and often smug about the challenges in working for our relatively harmonious, diverse society in the 21st century. Mm. You tend, I'd say, we tend to get, I think, with you know, self-described anti-racism when talking, about, when talking about anti-Semitism. As we said, it's still very stuck in in the idea of these are, you know, there were terrible things that happened in Europe in the 30s and 40s, um, and that there, you know, and a lot of people who say they're fighting Islamophobia tend to almost almost entirely focus on 
Western foreign policy rather than really thinking about and the, the effects of Western foreign, current Western foreign policy rather than focusing on what's happening to people here and now and the argument, again, the discussions about that within communities to an extent. Well, there tends to be a bifurcation between either ignoring the problematic aspects of certain minority forms of minority politics mm-hmm. or treating it as so central that it essentially removes uh, people from anti-racist protection. Yeah. So on the left, campaigning against Islamophobia often prevents an engagement with the realities of Islamist politics. Yeah. And similarly, on uh, with regard to Jews, the, the, the fact of majority Jewish support for Zionism often means that Jews cannot be incorporated inside anti-racist practice mm-hmm. without a lot of difficulty. But I'm not... People have made this point before, but what I'm not doing is saying is setting Jews and Muslims up against each other. Yeah, uh, I'm not saying, you know, why can't you treat us like you treat the Muslims and treat the Muslims like you treat the Jews? And you do see a crude version of that argument going around. Mm. What I'm trying to do is develop a form of anti-racism that can survive that knowledge of minority diversity and an acknowledgement of it without compromising. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? <laughs> well, I just wrote a book about it. And I, I'm struggling. I suppose I want to start a, a de- debate about this. What I suggest in the book is that the most important thing for anti-racists to do is to restrain love. The reason why we're in this terrible state about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is because most of the key players who have been accused of anti-Semitism have a real philo-Semitic love for particular forms of Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. And they cannot reconcile themselves to the existence of Jews who don't honour those particular traditions. Mm-hmm. So what I'm suggesting is by restraining love for y- your favourite Jews, and everyone has their favourite sort of Jews, other than complete neo-Nazis, <laughs> by restraining love your favourite sort of Jew, it might be easier to relate to your less than favourite sort of Jew. I'm suggesting a kind of way of responding to diversity with restraint and caution rather than a celebratory celebratory kind of rhetoric. I'm suggesting a, a way of being that is guarded, watchful, careful and it's not a particularly pleasant vision and it goes against my deepest instincts which are for dialogue engagement love and all that kind of good stuff but i think we've reached the point and i think the the internet has a lot to do with it Mm -hmm. uh, and social media obviously in particular where to step back from the brink of selective anti-racism and to navigate the diversity that exists we have to practice some something much more careful and much more difficult and much more cautious but one of the things I do emphasize in the book is that this is not an argument against diversity in fact I'd go further increasingly in recent years I'm starting to see come round to the idea that the borders should ideally be as open as possible and the reason for that is climate change mm-hmm. and uh, the millions if not billions of refugees that are going to have that we're going to have in the future. But I'm basically saying, if we have any chance to welcome the huge numbers of people that ethically we must welcome in future decades, 
then we're going to have to understand that diversity is not always easy. We're going to have to have a politics of diversity that works better than it currently does now. Because there is no doubt that whilst campaigners against immigration are almost always wrong when they talk about the negative consequences of immigration, if you were to bring in 5, 10, 50 million people in a short space of time in Britain, it would be incredibly difficult. Yep. It would cause problems. And I, I think we should be letting in 5, 10, 15 million people, not necessarily now, but certainly if climate change goes the way it's going within the next 20 or so years. And to do that, we're going to have to let go of naively celebratory versions of, of diversity and work with a much tougher-minded one where mm -hmm. we are absolutely committed to the existence of diversity in society, but without any illusions that it's easy to deal with. It's a great note to end on. Um, no, it's a horrible <laughs> note to end on. It's, it's not fun. I mean, I don't, this is, this is a, a fairly uh, frustrating it's... and difficult book that includes the odd joke, partly to take away from the fact that it's it, it's so bleak. <laughs> so Keith Gonzalez's very bleak, strange hate is available from Repeater Books now. Keith, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. <laughs> this episode of Little Atoms was presented by me, Podrick Reedy, and edited by Sky Redman. Little Atoms is supported by 8-9-Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. And remember to check out littleatoms.com for a full archive. Thank you for listening. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.